This message by Pastor Eric Ludy was given at the church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. As a ministry, we desire to see the return of strong, triumphant Christianity in the church today. We make these messages available free of charge for the purpose of strengthening the body of Christ and igniting bold faith in the hearts of believers around the world. The ministry of Ellerslie is made possible through the prayers and financial support of listeners like you. If you have been personally impacted by Ellerslie's messages, please consider partnering with us as we build world changers for Jesus Christ through gospel-centered discipleship. Visit ellerslie.com to learn more. Now, here's Pastor Eric Ludy. I got up uh, early this morning and uh, came in from a time of prayer outside and uh, Harper was up and so it was pretty dark in the house still and I went to the one chair I usually go to to sort of finish up my Sunday notes and then I get them over to Sandy everything's polished you know finalized keynotes finalized notes and Harper uh, Jack little Jackie is Hudson's dog and he was very excited to see Harper and so Harper kept sort of picking up Jackie and setting him on my lap where he was licking my face I was having a tough time uh, getting done with the notes but she sort of saw what I was doing, that I was reviewing the notes for today. And after a few more episodes with Jackie licking my face, uh, she asked the question, she goes, Daddy, do you need to memorize those? Uh, And she noticed that I was pretty studiously uh, looking them over. I said, no, no, I don't need to memorize them. I just need to know them really well. And I was thinking about that for whatever reason as I was standing next to Harper back there that You know, the messages that I give, I need to know very, very well. Leslie and I, before we wrote our first book, we sort of covenanted together on a a critical point. And we had witnessed a version of Christianity that, when we were growing up, that would say one thing with its mouth and live a different with its life. And it had created a great deal of falling away in our growing up years from the world at large. And we had a lot of the televangelists. I mean, I grew up in the midst of some of the greatest scandals in Christian history. And it leads to a certain disillusionment where is it possible for someone to actually speak it and live it? And that was one of the things I laid before God when I was first radically giving my life to Jesus. As I said, Jesus, I want to give my life fully to you. But if I knew I was going to fall away, if I knew I was going to bungle this and bring shame to your name, I'd rather not go anywhere. I'd rather not even start. God, can I have an assurance that I can go the distance? What a strange request. The assurance is there from Jesus. He will carry us the distance. We're in the midst of a battle, and this world is desiring to compromise Christianity and what it represents. And so Leslie and I made a covenant together, and that was if we're going to write it in a book, if we're going to speak it out, we need to live it first. And that has been tested so many times. There were times when we were writing a chapter of a book and we knew what God's word said, but we were struggling with living that chapter out. And so we had to, before we could write it, we had to live it. And this particular message, I may not have memorized the notes, but I've learned this message really well. I know it well. It is a very deep part of who I am and... It's one of the things that I would say on the outside, I wouldn't have wanted to hear myself say that if I was going to do a fast forward. It's like, oh, God, give me a peek into my future. And then he 
sticks this title up on the screen and says, you'll know that well. And I'd hear myself going, and I know this one really well. I was like, dear God, what's in store for me? And yet, listen to this closely, and yet, in hindsight, I wouldn't trade any of those sorrows, any of those sufferings, any of those trials out for an easier path. That is, to me, something very, very special, which I will attempt to convey in and through this message. This message is the essence, which is a very key word in this. Essence is actually what it's all about. It's the essence of something that we get from Jesus Christ. When he gave up his life, he gave us his essence. He gave us the power of his Holy Spirit. He gave us his very life. And the essence that God has built inside of me resonates with this message. The word suffering is a bad word uh, to most of us. And even though many of you in this, in this room know even what the scriptures say about it, it's still very difficult to swallow God's definition of these things. And yet what I want us to do is sort of, as the wind is gusting, just sort of set our forehead and walk straight into it. And I think you're going to discover something that will change your life. I think if Sandy was naming this message, she would name it Deep Comfort. And most of you, when you think of suffering, do not think of deep comfort. You think of deep pain. But that's because you haven't yet learned God's rendition of suffering. God's rendition of suffering opens you up to receive deep comfort. And it's something so precious and so beautiful that every single one of us in here, when we tasted it, would say, thank you. That was more than the suffering was in the negative, the deep comfort was in the positive. It outweighs. Just like the joys of having that child be born are greater than the pains of the delivery. Of course, you're saying, yeah, you can say it, Eric. I had to deliver it. I'm just saying that's what Paul says. So this is the message of the word of God. This is the message throughout history is that the travail and the trials that we face in this world are paled next to the grand reward and consolation we receive in knowing Jesus Christ. Grape School, a study in the exquisite joys of suffering. So everything about that title is a little odd. I recognize that. Uh, This past week, I was studying James 1, and I was also uh, working on some notes for a future conference I'm going to have in a few months where they had asked me to speak on a certain message. And uh, so I was revisiting those notes, and it was about uh, grapes. And so in the process of studying James 1 this week and grapes and having to redo my notes and set those up for a conference in the future, I was once again struck, thunderstruck, by the beauty that is inerrant uh, in this message. And so this is... This has been a special thing to prepare. Grape school, uh, just in case you're not catching it, is like grade school. You see, you don't recognize it right now. The the Bible calls us all sorts of things. I mean, you're sheep, you're a bride. uh, I mean, we're all sorts of things in Scripture, right? Uh, But we're also, in a sense, grapes. I'm going to liken us all to grapes. And that's really strange uh, to be likened to a grape, but Jesus was like a grape. Just like he was a corn of wheat, 
And it's like, what a strange thing to be likened to these things. Well, we're likened. That doesn't mean we are a grape. We're likened to it. There's qualities of a grape that make sense of our Christianity, and they're good. So James 1. So this is, I spent a lot of time in James 1, 1 through 4. I kept trying to get to the rest of the chapter, but I kept getting stuck here. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad. Greetings. Now that word uh, greetings uh, in the Greek is the same one from a couple weeks ago. It's uh, oftentimes translated hail or rejoice. It's a strange thing. How, how could you get greetings, hail, and rejoice out of the same word? But it's the same word for rejoice. And so in the, the scriptures, Cairo, the word that is ba- the basis of charis, which is the word grace. And so this is the equivalent of grace to you. It's the equivalent of let's go upward. We have something so amazing to rejoice in. So greetings. And what a strange statement right before you say this next line to give that word. Greetings. Rejoice. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. There is something so profound that comes out of these trials that you are facing. Don't look at them as negative. Consider it pure joy. Now, you know that scripture. I don't know that that many of you actually do it, though. In other words, it's a very clear command here. Consider it pure joy when you face trials of many kinds, when you face those varying trials throughout your life. In other words, it doesn't just say one kind of trial. It's all the various versions of trial that we face. There's testings. There's prunings. There's challenges. We all have them. It's not like, a lot of us look and long for that life that is immune to difficulty where we don't have any challenges. Well, that's not the life you want. It's definitely not the life of a Christian. A Christian literally stares squarely at the life that is ahead and greets it with a smile and says, I know there's trials up ahead, O life, and I'm going to consider each of those pure joy. For out of them, something is going to be worked inside of me that will reveal the glory of God to the heavenlies. Suffering. So just a quick definition, we could say the world's lens on suffering. I mean, this is what it is, don't get me wrong, but there's also two different lenses you could have. This whole past week, I was introducing the new students to the twos. You have the old man, and you have the new man. You have the old covenant, you have the new covenant. There's always twos in scripture. And we have to give up the old man, you have to put it off, so that we can wear and put on a new man. And so there are two glasses. There's two ways of looking at everything you go through in this life. You can look at it through the lens of the old man. And you have a tendency to only see it in how it affects self. It's like, this stinks. This is a state of undergoing pain, distress, or hardship. Well, that doesn't sound good. If we were going to be a voting group in here, it's like, okay, let's vote yay or nay on suffering. And could you imagine we vote down suffering? It's like, that'd be pretty cool. No more suffering in life. And yet... This isn't how heaven looks at it. When you put on heaven's glasses, it's like the opportunity to understand and grow in patience and receive a consolation from God, which is immeasurable in this earthly sense. That's not what we read. It's not the opportunity to discover God at a deeper level. You see, James says, consider it pure joy when you face this. 
when you undergo pain or distress or hardship, trials of various kinds. You're supposed to consider this pure joy. See, that's not in our earthly definition. We're reading the wrong dictionary, guys. You see, you know the words in the Bible, but you're not translating that into your soul with a mindset of heaven. You still are looking at it with lenses of the first man. So my conclusion for us, even before we start the message, is suffering is good. And I know I may have a little convincing to do throughout this message to get you to come to that point. And some of you are like, I'm not coming to that point. Some of you are in the midst of difficulty right now, and it doesn't feel good. I'm not saying that what the enemy is wielding against you is good. I'm saying that the suffering and the effects of it in your life produce good when you receive it God's way. In other words, the enemy is up to no good. And when he works his no good against you, I'm not calling that good. What I'm calling good is what happens as a result of you receiving his no good in the way that produces good out of it. It converts all the enemy means for evil into good. That's the profound position the Christian is in. So just a little summary of what the scriptures say. We are grieved by many trials. And most of us would say, well, that sounds terrible. And yet we greatly rejoice. We rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. What a strange response to being grieved by many trials. That doesn't even seem logical. We are reviled, persecuted, and falsely accused. That doesn't sound good. And yet, blessed are we, let us rejoice and be exceeding glad. We are partakers of Christ's sufferings. Sounds horrible. And yet, we may, we be, glad, we may be glad with exceeding joy. We endure tribulations, and yet we are exceeding joyful. We face trials and testings, and yet we count it all joy. But what a strange life we as Christians live. I recognize that at first blush, a message like this can be intimidating. It's like even by receiving such a message, you sort of get the concern that God's going to get the hint that he can start to dump some trials on you. Trials are inerrant. God doesn't just increase trials because you hear a message. God wants you to start appropriating the trials that are just inerrant in your life into good instead of into misery. Many of you are under your trials instead of above them. I use the illustration of an eagle a lot when it comes to trials and difficulties in this natural life. An eagle is what we're likened to in Scripture, along with being sheep and grapes in this message. But an eagle has strengthened its wings to rise above a storm. Is the storm there? Yes, the storm is there. But you could be beneath it or you could be above it. Same storm. You could have suffering in your life. You could be beneath it or you could be flying above it. You still have the suffering, but you could be above it. So do we actually believe that suffering is <clears throat> good or produces good? Uh, that's a hard one. I mean, it, it's, we just don't feel it. Remember what I taught the students in here? Remember fact, faith, and experience? I don't really care what you feel. I care what God's word says. And so we as Christians, what we do is we fix ourselves upon what his word says. Behind us are experiences. You know, I've, I've gone through some suffering in the past, and it was miserable. Yeah, I know. You have a lot of those experiences. So do I. And you have a lot of emotion back here. This doesn't feel fun. This isn't what I would choose. I recognize that. However, when you fix your gaze on God, and you believe his word, and he says, I'm going to take care of you right now. 
You see, when you face this, I want you to rejoice. I want you to leap for joy. You're like, what? I don't feel like that. And I'm telling you, don't measure your response based on what you feel. Measure it based on your faith in the word of God. God says it. I trust him. He says he's going to turn this into good. Our goal as Christians is to live by faith, not by feelings. And the feelings associated with suffering are not usually good ones. And so what God says is, instead of following the feelings, I want you to follow me. And if you fix your gaze on me, I'm going to carry you through this in a profound and powerful way. So exercising faith in the word of God. You see, what we need to do is just come to the simple matter of, do we actually believe what scripture says? Because God doesn't stutter on this point. He says, look, guys, I will turn every one of these things into good in your life. I want you to consider it pure joy when you face this trial right now. You see, that's what the word is saying to you. The word is going to tell you, and I'm going to go through a lot of it. It's going to tell you what God is going to produce from this. My question to you is, do you believe that? Do you believe that God can produce something that would be so immeasurably better than just having no trial or difficulty at all? Because that's what we would choose. Just give me no trial or difficulty. That calm is what I prefer. However, what God is saying is you're going to get something even better. It's sort of like the woman saying, I don't want to have a baby. I don't want to go through the difficulty of delivery. So I would rather just not have children. And she loses a blessing. She loses a beauty in her life that is immeasurable. And when you stare that little child in the face, it makes your... I don't want to make any comments about delivery. I should be very careful here. But it makes the pains of that pale next to the child that now you cannot imagine being without. And that is precisely what happens in Christianity. I know from the onset you're thinking, I think I'll go without the child. I think I'll go without that blessing from God. I think I'll go without this consolation that you're talking about, Eric. But when you see the consolation and when you receive it, you can't imagine not having it. And then you actually have weird thoughts like, I guess I'd go through that again. Aren't we Christians weird? That we would actually be able to smile in the midst of difficulty with the eye on the prize the whole while going, I know what God's going to do out of this. You see... Leslie went through 39 hours of labor for little Hudson Jack. And yet we still have more children. When we went, th- we've gone through adoptions that have been extremely painful, and yet we kept adopting. Why would we do that? Well, when you stare these little ones in the face and you get to know them, you're like, you know what? You're worth it all. And I would go through it. Like I've oftentimes said to God, it's not just I would go through another trial. I'd go through 10,000 times that to gain this. In other words, it far outweighs. I know emotionally you don't feel that, but I'm not telling you to feel your way through Christianity. I'm saying believe. God will do that. The happy story of a grape. So let's get in the skin of a grape for a little bit, and let's live life through a grape's eyes. It's an interesting life, because grapes are staring at something in their future that isn't necessarily that happy sounding. And yet there's just so much rejoicing in it. Could you imagine you're growing all fat on the vine and you know the vine dresser is like, good grape. You know, you're looking really good. And yet what are you being prepared for? To be smushed. I mean, if you, that's in your future. It's like, yeah, I'm gonna face a 
boots against and getting all of the good stuff out of me. I'm building all this good stuff and, and it's just going to be smushed out of me. So, and this is the happy story of a grape. That doesn't sound very happy, does it? In the Hebrew culture, the pressing of the grapes took place in September and was accompanied with great rejoicing. That's one of the key things about the trampling of grapes is it was with shouts and dancing and great rejoicing. Isn't that an irony? That shouts and dancing and great rejoicing would accompany the smushing of the grapes. The ripe grapes were gathered into baskets and carried to the wine press. Wine press? What, what was that? What, what was that you just said? Wine press? Oh yeah, that's where we smush you. They were then placed in, the, in an upper vat for treading. A certain amount of juice exuded from the ripened grapes simply due to the initial weight of the harvest in the vat. By the way, this is a good harvest. So we have a huge vat up here, okay? And we're sticking in loads of grapes. And just the weight of the grapes is actually all the ones on the bottom are going, uh, uh, boy, this is getting a little heavy down here. And all of that initial juice that is coming out is called the sweet wine. Very precious wine. It's reserved for very special purposes. This initial juice that exuded was called the sweet wine. It was kept separate from the rest of the juice. The treading then commenced. Tread? Treading? Treading? And was affected by one or more men depending on the size of the vat. Okay, so it could be a lot more. I mean, if we have a huge vat, I mean, you can get all sorts of guys in there. Remember how they roll up their, their pant legs and they roll up their sleeves and they start doing these Jewish dances in there? Yeah, that, that, you're under there. I mean, you were all, oh, that's a great dance. Wait a minute, where am I in this story? You're beneath their feet. That's the whole job is that they are, and it's all through rejoicing. This is a celebration and yet there's some smushing going on. And so which angle are you looking at this from? Are you celebrating with the dancers? Or are you going, no, no, hey, hey, I didn't sign up for this. I don't want to be smushed. They encouraged one another by shouts. Their legs and clothing were stained red with the blood of the grape, and the expressed juice escaped by an aperture into the lower vat, or was at once collected into vessels. Remember Jesus Jesus was a grape, if you want to say it that way. And he was crushed for us. And out of his side flowed a river. And we are a vessel that caught it. Isn't that an amazing thought? The very picture you just witnessed is actually what was revealed in and through the death, the crushing of Jesus Christ. And the reason you have life in you is because he was willing to be crushed. The joy set before him was what enabled him to endure that cross. Most of us wouldn't think of that as a celebration. I mean, to encourage him on with shouts, dancing, and yet this is the good news that leads to much dancing and rejoicing in our lives. It's called the joy of salvation. And it's found in the crushing of a grape. Isn't that fascinating? The blood of the grape. So it's interesting because when you think of a grape, you think of juice in a grape. However, to the Jews, it was called the blood of the grape. And they would even look at that as the life of the grape. So wine, which is the blood of the grape, it's what comes out. I mean, you'd look at it as grape juice. They would typically refer to it as wine, whether it was fermented or not. 
It was just wine. It's that blood of the grape that came forth. How did it come forth? Well, through crushing, through being stomped on. That's how it came out. And this was the life of the grape. Without that grape, you have just a skin left behind. And by the way, I don't know how many of you want to just go collect a whole bunch of skins of grapes and chew on them a little. You see, that's the husk. That's not what we're after. We're after the life. The life is where the value is in a grape. This is the value. And how does it come forth? Life comes forth through crushing. The life of the perfect grape, his name, Jesus. In every regard, he was given the life of God inside of him. And he was prepared just for such a season where he would be crushed to give us his life. The life of a grape. So in summary, the life of a grape, and I know some of you are going to be a little disturbed by the fact that I'm calling you grapes, especially with this as the summary. It's tended with joy to be trounced with joy. You see, the husbandman loves a good grape. If you're a husbandman, one who, you know, a vine dresser, one who takes care of grapes, you love to see grapes look good and juicy on the vine. You'll probably even talk to them. Oh, you're doing good, grapes. Oh, good job. In other words, he loves his grapes, and so they're tended with joy to be crushed with shouts of joy. It's just a strange thought to think that something like crushing, something like the suffering of a grape, would be tended with joy. Doesn't that just seem like it should be tended with great sorrow? Instead, it's tended with great joy. The proverb of the grape, the bitter boot releases the sweet wine. In other words, the sweetest aspects of the glory of God come out in and through bitterness that we we face in this life, the trials that we face in this life. Many of you in here, it's, it's interesting because at any one given time, if we were to just have a snapshot of your lives, see, when you come to church, you have a tendency, you know, we get dressed up, we look good, you don't have tears staining your face. You know, if you just did your makeup, you want to make sure you do it after you did your crying. You don't want to get your makeup on and then do your crying and then walk into church. You don't want people to know the difficulties you have, even though you do sort of want them to know, you don't want them to know for, you know, social dignity reasons. But at any moment in time, we can take a snapshot. And in a room this size, we have a lot of pain. There's a lot of challenge in this room, whether it's physical challenge and physical pain, whether it's emotional and psychological, relational, financial. They're difficulties and they're acute and they cut. And they're, they're the types of things that for most of us, we just want away from. You know, if I could say right now, how many of you have, you don't need to raise your hand, but how many of you have a pain in your life you'd love to have removed? Well, I have a hunch that there would be a lot of hands that would go up. Isn't that an amazing thought to think that so many of us, even those that are vigorously seeking after Jesus, have pains in our life, have difficulties in our life that we would, if we could choose, would have them removed right now. Now, that does not mean that God doesn't want to intervene and remove that challenge, but While you have that challenge, I don't want you to waste it. And so the key in Christianity isn't that we don't pray for thorns to be removed. It's that when you have a thorn, you need to recognize that his grace is sufficient and that he will build you in and through that trial and that difficulty in a way that when you look back, you will say, God, I thank you for that. So if that's the case, you might as well thank him now. And that's actually what Paul the Apostle teaches. Give thanks in all things. 
See, you're going to thank him someday for this. You just don't have eyes to see it. So you might as well thank him up front. In fact, start thanking him before it even happens. Thank you, God. I know that trials are up ahead, but I thank you for each one of them because in and through it, you're going to reveal to me who you are at a deeper level. The glory of the grape. You see, glory is sort of something's truest picture of what it is, it's like its virtue, what it, what it ultimately is meant to be. And so God's glory is like when the curtain is pulled back and you can see him clearly without any hindrance. Well, what would be the true picture of what a grape ought to be? The glory of the grape is not found in its plump redness while nesting cozily amidst the vine. Most of us spend our entire life trying to figure out how we can just rest cozily in vines and be fat. That's like our great life ambition. How can we be fat and and have a cozy, comfortable life in the vine? But that's not where the glory of the grape is found. But rather, it is found when its inner wine comes forth at the beckoning of the husbandman's squeeze. It's in the squeezing that the grape reveals its truest virtue, beauty, and strength. What is the true value of that grape? Not to stare at it. I don't know how many of you just like staring at grapes. You bring a cluster home and stick them in a bowl and just look at them. I mean, some people do have those fake plastic grapes, I guess, in their house. But for the most part, what makes a grape valuable to us is what's inside of those grapes. And so as a result, the moment they arrive in your home, the, the clock starts ticking. It's, time, it's the end of that grape because that, the purpose of that grape isn't to just nest cozily, even on the King Super's shelf. It's to actually find its way into those teeth where it's squeezed and the juice comes forth. That's what the purpose of a grape is. The mindset of a grape. Remember, we're going through grape school here, okay? So I'm teaching you guys how to think like a grape. So here's a grape thought. I am built strong to be poured out. And it is in the pouring out that I will rejoice with the greatest fervor. It is in the crushing that I will leap the highest. And it is in the moments of squeezing that I will sing the loudest. To spill out that which was first spilled into me is my greatest delight. For I am a grape. And I was made to fill my king's cup. See, we are not just being squeezed just for anyone or for anything. We are being squeezed for our king. Just imagine our king has a cup. He has a a kitchen and he loves grapes. And he is wanting to fill that cup with the life of his believers. The grace living that we have, the plumpness that he's building up in us, he desires to spend it to utilize it for his glory. What a a privilege. For I am a grape and I was made to fill my king's cup to bring pleasure and delight to him. The motto of the grape. So here's a new motto for you. To fill my king's cup. Why do we live? To fill our king's cup. And so we could, you know, have a chant. Let's fill our king's cup. That's what we're about. We have something to give. God is the one that puts it into us. He's the one that makes us plump with the life of Jesus. And then he calls forth that life. He says, please give that life to the world. That's how we fill his cup is by receiving his life and then letting it get squeezed out of us to bless the world with his sweetness. You see, God shares his life. And so as a result, just as he shared his life, with us. We were the vessels that caught it. Now he sticks his life into us. 
and we become little grapes, just like him. And then he squeezes us and allows that juice to impact this world around us. He's a sharer. He gives. And so as a result, when you know that that's his intention, why would you complain when the little juice is coming out of you? You're getting squeezed right now. No, no, but this is good because that life is now being given to others. The tale of two cups. You know that there's actually two cups described in the scripture? It's strange. Cups. What, a, what an odd statement. But cups. Now, I'm going to describe those as two comings here because, well, it'll make more sense as, as we start. But the number one, the cup of grace. In other words, God is pouring out his life. He is pouring out the juice within himself. The Holy Spirit. I remember William Law said it this way. Jesus didn't just die to forgive us our sins. He died to give us Pentecost. He died to give us his very life within us. That's why he died. Now, he did forgive us in the process. However, there's a greater picture and understanding of what he came to do, and that was to gift us his life so that our bodies would actually be living vessels, so that we would animate and show forth to the heavenly realms his nature. So we're going to call this the cup of grace. God has poured out upon us his grace, his Holy Spirit, his very life. So poured out on all that are thirsty for righteousness. So who receives it? Who drinks? Those that are thirsty for righteousness, which I hope is you in this room. But we have drunk of this cup, this cup of grace, which is filled with his life, that life that he gave us at the cross 2,000 years ago. And he, Jesus, took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, to his disciples, saying, drink you all of it. For this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. So what you have is a picture of a cup. And he says, I want you to drink this, all of it. Take the grace. I've oftentimes said that technically, if we were to do communion right, we would not just have these little diddly squat things. I mean, it's logistically challenging. So don't hold our church to it. Just, Just use your imagination. Do this in the privacy of your own home for now. But you'd get a huge tumbler full of this stuff. I mean, it's like, hey, are you leaving any grace on the table there? Hey, there's more in your cup. I'd take more of that. That's the way we are. We got this little diddly squat thing. We're like, I guess that's all God has to give me. God has more than you know how to drink. I mean, it's just a waterfall, Niagara Falls. So I don't know what it would be like if we gave a real picture of it, but it would be like this huge room full of grape juice. It's like, drink it all. It's like, what? It might take you a lifetime, but drink it all. Don't leave a speck of it behind, not a drop of it behind. All of it is for you. He sacrificed and he suffered so that you would have all of who he is. Number two, we're going to call it the cup of the wrath. Eh, Not as exciting, is it? See, who gets this one? Who gets to drink from this cup? Well, the Bible tells us very clearly who drinks from this cup. It's poured out on all that are thirsty for unrighteousness. If you're thirsty for righteousness, you get grace. If you're thirsty for unrighteousness, you'll get something, but it's not going to be grace. It'll be wrath. And that's what it says in Scripture. In Psalm 75, it says, For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup. Oh, there's a cup again. And the wine is red. It is full of mixture. And he pours out of the same, but the dregs thereof, all the wicked of the earth, shall wring them out and drink them. 
Listen to Jeremiah 25. For thus says the Lord God of Israel unto me, take the wine cup of this fury at my hand and cause all the nations to whom I send thee to drink it. Then took I the cup at the Lord's hand and made all the nations to drink unto whom the Lord had sent me. And it shall be, if they refuse to take the cup at thine hand to drink, then shalt thou say unto them, Thus says the Lord of hosts, You shall certainly drink. Ah! So right now, you can choose to drink the cup of grace. If you refuse, you will be forced to drink the cup of his wrath. Boop. To fill my king's cup. We fill the king's cup of grace. Who now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up that which is behind of the afflictions of Christ in my flesh for his body's sake, which is the church. It's interesting, but the way God designed the church to function is that he is giving us, in in a sense, the initial sweet wine. And then we fill his vat. And then we are squeezed And the nations are going to receive that grace in and through us, the church. And so our sufferings are making up afflictions that are still needed in order to give out that grace, that measure of grace, which is requisite to this world. Revelation 6. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice. In other words, these are those that suffered saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then a white robe was given to each of them, and it was said to them that they should rest a little while longer until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren, who would be killed as they were, was completed. I don't know about you, but that's an odd statement. In other words, there is a need for suffering in and amongst the saints for the work of God to be accomplished in this world. Now, most of us would just prefer that to be someone like in China. I mean, the church in China can fill that up. I mean, they're doing a really good job with that. We don't need to here in America. That's one of the blessings of being American, right? We don't need to do the suffering thing. That could be those Pakistani Christians or the Syrian Christians. They, they, They can deal with that. No, no. This is the privileged position. We receive a white robe of consolation. There is something amazing that comes. You don't want to be left out. You don't want to be the one that's like, oh, and then the Americans didn't get to suffer. No, 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 I don't want to be in that list. We want to be the grapes that are chosen by the vine dresser. Oh, here's a plump one. In other words, we want to be the ones fit to do the service of the king to fill his cup. Consolation. This is a word I want to focus on as we move forward. It's the word consolation. We don't use it necessarily the way that uh, scripture would. Consolation, have you ever heard of getting a consolation prize? It's sort of like, yeah, it was some guy got all the awards and some guy got second place, third place, and then you got a consolation prize. It's like, this is to sort of make you feel like, you know, we love you still. And that's very different than what we have here. The consolation of God is anything but a, you know, afterthought. This is the thing that moves us. This is like, okay, I, I want that. I'm willing to go through anything to get that. So we're going to call it the reward of suffering. There is something that enables us to face suffering with a smile, to face difficulties with a leap for joy and a shout. What is it? It's that which is set before us. You see, there is something set before us that moves us. 
Now, that reward of suffering truly is, it's not like a pile of gold. And so we're like, hey, I'm willing to go through this as long as I get a couple million out of this. It's different than that. Let me say it this way. It's far better than that. You see, gold is not what we as Christians are after. We're not looking for some temporary, temporary security. We're looking for something that can never be removed from us. It's a deposit into our life that is eternal. And very simply put, it's what Paul was after, to know Christ. To share so intimately in his life that you are inextricably bound to him. The way that you know a spouse, but then multiplied by millions. In other words, it's an intimacy of knowing, of sharing life, of being comforted at the deepest of levels. It's like I have that in front of me. I could remove myself from suffering and never know that intimacy. I could remove myself from trials and never know that deep depth of comfort. But what stands before us as Christians is we stare at that depth of comfort that we see some of the great men and women throughout history that had. And we see the glow upon their, their face. We see the radiance in their life. We hear the joy effervesce out of them, the peace that passes all understanding that seems to be exuded out of their existence. We're like, I, well, I want what that person has. What is that? Well, that was gained through suffering. I'll never forget seeing Richard Wormbrandt. He was the one who started Voice of the Martyrs. And he was on a videotape. My brother said, you have to see this. And he gets this videotape. And we just had this little small, I think it was a black and white television too. I didn't, have, I didn't even watch television at the time when I was out in Michigan. So we got this video player and this television hooked it up. Terrible quality. I mean, it was the, one of the worst quality things I've ever seen in my life. The, the screen is like... And I was changed in watching this man. I mean, I'm watching this man, and I, I literally felt like he was liquid love. Like he just loved me through the screen. He loved Jesus so much. I'd never seen anyone that loved Jesus like this. And he was describing his torture in prison with a smile on his face talking about sharing the life of Jesus with others and the privilege of suffering. I could not make it out. I had no translation device in my being for this. What is this? And here's what I said to God. I want what that man has. Now, the answer that came back to me, and you know the way only God can communicate with his saints, are you willing to go through what he did to get it? Well, God, is there another way? Can I get what he has, that intimacy he has with you, like just sort of leap over that suffering sort of into your arms? You know, I'll get a running start. Whoa, oh, there we go. Now that's the way I was dreaming of it. No, the way that he gained it was through that suffering. I don't like that. And there's probably a few in here, in here that are like, yeah, could we sign a petition on that one, Eric? I have a hunch we could get a few signatures in here. There should be another avenue to life as opposed to death. I don't want death. I want to just skip the death and get the life. I don't want to have to go through the cross to get the resurrection. Can't I just get the resurrection life without dying, without getting crushed, without squeezing? No. The word of God is very clear on that point. You want to live, you need to die. Unless a corn of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it cannot bring forth much fruit. Unless a grape is crushed, we will never receive that life from it. And unless you learn to bleed out the life that God has given you, you cannot make many disciples. 
You see, we have a job to do, and to get to know Jesus, we need to do it Jesus' way. It's called a narrow way, which ironically means a way of squeezing, a way of compression. And uh, there's a Broadway over here that doesn't have any compression. We're like, I like that way. But the Broadway doesn't lead to him. If you want him, there's a narrow way. And it leads to life. Fewer those who find it. One of the ways I oftentimes rephrase that is fewer those that want to find that. It offends us. At the deepest part of our being, our first man does not like that. But the new man that is being born anew and being matured inside of you is strangely fascinated by what I'm talking about. Isn't that weird? And there's a part of you that's like, God, I see it. It still causes my knees to knock and my legs to tremble, but I see it. The word for consolation is paraklesis, paraklesis. This is what it means. Help and support that is very near. So God is saying, I'm going to give you a consolation. When you face trials, I have a consolation for you, and it's going to be a help and support that is very near to you. It is going to be very ready, something that is very ready to supply strength to you, intimate aid, heart-level encouragement, the supply of deep comfort. This is what lies before us. You face a trial, God says, I promise you this. I promise you paraclesis. Now, there's another word that if you've hung around here at Ellerslie, you've heard. And it's actually a word that is typically translated helper or comforter. And uh, when Jesus is teaching his disciples in the book of John about the Holy Spirit that he is going to send, he uses this term, parakletos. It's the Holy Spirit. It's the very present help in times of trouble, the very ready supply of strength. Do you see any similarity between paraklesis and parakletos? In other words, the consolation that we get is depth, life. We get, we give up life, yes, but we receive even a greater measure of the life of Jesus. You want more of Jesus, you have to allow the suffering in your life. And what you do is you receive more from his cross. You receive more of the Holy Spirit. You receive the helper at a greater measure, more intimacy, more closeness, deeper comfort. The Holy Spirit, the very present help in times of trouble, the very ready supply of strength, the intimate aid of the Father, the one who delivers the heart-level encouragement, the one who supplies the deep comfort. So I'm going to give you a truth. This isn't a definition for truth, even though it sort of looks like that up here. This is just a truth. The degree of consolation always outweighs the degree of suffering. So whatever degree of suffering you are facing, the degree of consolation that God will give you in that suffering outweighs the degree of suffering. Did I say the degree of consolation? In the midst of that suffering? It outweighs it. So no matter the degree of suffering, the degree of consolation will always prove greater. So conclusion, suffering for the name of Jesus Christ is always something worthy of celebration. I, I know, it seems really weird, but this is what all the writers of the New Testament are saying. Hey guys, let's leap, let's rejoice. Don't you understand the, the mathematics here? You guys ever seen a greater than symbol? It's like the degree of consolation is always greater than the degree of suffering. So whatever degree of suffering you have, you're going to get more consolation out of it. So it's like, hey, let's increase the suffering. I'm going to get more consolation. You only would say that if you knew how good consolation was. If you don't know and you haven't tasted of the consolation of God, then you're not going to be wishing for that. However, as Christians, I wouldn't say that we pursue suffering. 
I would say that we welcome it when it knocks because we understand the mathematics of the kingdom of heaven. We understand, thank you, God, this is how I will know you more. I have been praying that I would know you more, and now I have the opportunity. 2 Corinthians 1. Now, this is loaded with the word paraklesis. This is our word consolation. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so are paraklesis also abounds. So our consolation, that deep comfort, our consolation also abounds by Christ. And whether we be afflicted, it is for your consolation, your paraclesis, and salvation, which is effectual in the enduring of the same sufferings which we also suffer. Or whether we be comforted, it is for your consolation and salvation. And our hope of you is steadfast, knowing that as you are partakers of the sufferings, so shall you be also of the consolation. For we would not, brethren, have you ignorant of our trouble which comes to us, came to us in Asia, that we were pressed out of measure. Isn't that a great term for grapes? We were pressed out of measure about, above strength in so much that we despaired even of life. We are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Cast down, but not destroyed. Always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. For we which live are always delivered unto death for Jesus' sake, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our mortal flesh. So then death works in us, but life in you. Death worked in Jesus, but what worked in us? Life. So now, even when death works in us, what's going to work in those around us that are receiving from that aperture, that drip of life coming out of us when we are squeezed? Life has worked in others. And that's what Paul is saying. Look, guys, I know I'm dying. I know I'm suffering, but it's for you. I am giving the life to you that Jesus poured into me. This is the principle of the kingdom. Suffering gives life. If what is inside of you is the Holy Spirit, then what comes out of you when you are crushed is the life of God. If what is inside of you is bitter and acrid, and it's first life, it's flesh, then what comes out of you is anything but life when you are crushed. The training of a grape. So let's go through grape school. A grape must learn to embrace the crushing and a grape must learn to be crushed well. So we've been starting with the concept of embracing the crushing. Okay, right now some of you are still, you know, sort of arm's length on this message. It's like, <laughs> I, I know, okay, you've given me some good evidence, Eric, but wow, embrace crushing? Well, how about the second one? A grape must learn to be crushed well. Well, so once you embrace crushing, it's like, okay, now when I'm crushed, I'm going to be crushed well. I had a message quite a few years ago about dying well. I figure, you know, if we're going to die for Jesus daily, we might as well do it well. We might as well learn how to die properly. You can be dragged to your end and go, ah, and scream the whole way. That's not dying well. How do you die well? Well, this will sort of answer that question as well. Lesson number one, the beauty of the crushing. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also abounds by Christ. So, yes, sufferings may increase in your life, but so our consolation also abounds by Christ. So Paul says, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being made conformable unto his death. What are we being made conformable unto? Unto the life of a grape. We are being made conformable unto the one who is crushed, that we would share in the fellowship of his sufferings. What a strange request Paul has. 
This is his yearning, his drive, his desire that he would share in the fellowship of those very sufferings that Christ carried and that he'd be made conformable to that pattern. That life is in Jesus and then pressed out to give to others. May we be made conformable to that pattern unto his death. What does Paul say about dying? It's gain. You see, we have a different mentality. Paul says, hey, to live is Christ, but to die, guys, it's gain. Don't you understand that that's, that's actually a grander end? For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain, but if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit from my labor. So if I continue in this body, that means more of the life can be poured through me and there'll be fruit from my labor. Yet what I shall choose, I cannot tell, for I am hard-pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh or to remain in this body is more needful for you. Paul says again to the Corinthians, we are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. They are desirous. Death is not something to be fearful of to a Christian. Suffering, death, I mean, all these bad things in our mind are actually not ever considered negative when you understand the new covenant and you have the lens of the second man. Thou fool, that which thou sows is not quickened except it die. In other words, unless there is death to that seed, it cannot bring forth fruit. And so therefore, we understand in our life as a principle, unless there is a dying in our body, unless there is that crushing, that squeezing, then fruit cannot come forth because there needs to be death in order for life to increase in our life. Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abides alone. But if it die, it brings forth much fruit. So here's a grape understanding of that. Thou fool, the life of the grape is not released unless it is crushed. Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a grape be crushed beneath the heel and die, its juice is its own and not imparted. But if it be crushed, it sheds forth its wine. So this is a summary. Lesson number one summary, to die is gain. Simple rule of thumb, to die is gain. To suffer is good. Great tenet number one, to be crushed is wine in our king's cup. So let's go to lesson two in grape school. Being great at being crushed. Uh, it'd be fascinating if we had a, a little quiz in here and we could sort of go through maybe the 10 most difficult trials we've had in the past year and then just sort of honestly acknowledge how well we handled them. Some of us don't do so well at the beginning and then we sort of get a grip spiritually and we finish well in our trial. Well, praise God for that. I have a desire. I, I remember you guys, well, some of you haven't heard the story about uh, my floods at my house but I've had six floods at my house. And the very first flood, I would say that I didn't pass the test very well. Okay, I'm just gonna be honest with you. I was rather stressed out. Uh, the only thing that calmed me was the thought that this would be covered by insurance. I remember actually thinking, it was no consolation that I was gaining from heaven. It was that I was thinking, this is probably gonna be covered by insurance. Okay, I shouldn't be stressed about this. And guess what, it wasn't. Uh, and yet, so in the process, I tried to create my own consolation, but my attitude was bad. I was like, we need bins. We need to catch this one. It was flooding in through the window. And then afterwards, I remember thinking, okay, God, that, that stunk. Uh, that was not a good response. If I ever get a flood again, which 
probably will never happen. This is the first flood I've ever had in my life. Well, then at least I know what I need to do. Well, I had five more of them. So uh, I've had plenty of practice in these things. However, many of you can identify with that, where the first time you're struck with a new test and a new challenge, all your learning goes out the window. And what comes out of you isn't quite the life of Jesus. And so what God is oftentimes pinpointing is there's other aspects of your life that you need to allow the Spirit of God to shore up and to deposit his life into so that when those things happen, out of you can flow rejoicing. I mean, I had floods later in the game where I was laughing and I was shouting to the heavenlies in the middle of the storm, watch what my God will do. You know, I I had all sorts of things going on. It's like triumph, even though uh, my basement got flooded again. Hey, I, I I found gold in the midst of it being great at being crushed. So the two attributes of every triumphant crushing, patience and rejoicing. Now, patience for many of us is the concept of like after church, all the kids are told to be patient when their parents are talking. Parents always love to talk at church. You ever notice that? And kids usually don't like to talk at church. They want to go and do stuff. And so I would have to wait for my mom. She's like, just be, be, mom, it's just going to be a few more minutes. And it was always like two hours. And, And the statement was, be patient. So being patient just means sort of standing there and not doing anything while your parents talk, right? And Or a microwave. It's like, this crazy thing is taking forever. Come on, come on, come on. And being patient would mean, all right, I'm going to wait a minute and I'm not going to complain. That isn't patience. Patience is not just having a good attitude at a red light that seems to have missed, you know, and it goes through two cycles. Patience is far greater than that. And you are supposed to have it as an attribute in your life every time You are tested every time you face a trial. The other thing is rejoicing. Every time you face a trial, you're supposed to have something coming out of you. Joy. I know it seems like the opposite of what would come out of you, but that's the whole point. If you live in the first life, you don't have any joy or patience coming out of you in these moments, believe me. But when you are transferred into the kingdom of light and Jesus Christ moves in, he wants to tutor your soul by the power of the Holy Spirit to actually allow the life of Jesus to flow out of difficulty. So let's look at the martyrdom of James the Great. First apostolic martyr. As James was led to the place of martyrdom, his accuser was brought to repent of his conduct by the apostles' extraordinary courage and undauntedness and fell down at his feet to request his pardon, professing himself a Christian, resolving that James should not receive the crown of martyrdom alone. Hence, they were both beheaded at the same time. Thus did the first apostolic martyr cheerfully and resolutely receive that cup, which he had told our Savior he was ready to drink. Whoa, what a story. James is accused and turned over by some man who doesn't believe in Jesus. This man witnesses James... Courage and undauntedness that he is willing to face death bravely. There's something about this that so strikes this man that he's cut to the heart and calls on Jesus for his own salvation actually says, I will die with him. Talk about a transformation. This guy literally for his own gain turns James over but then is changed by James, listen to this, his response to suffering. James James's, it's a hard thing to say, James's response to suffering and facing death actually is the tool that the Holy Spirit uses inside of this man to change him. That's pretty amazing. As a result, you need to see the weight of this in the kingdom of heaven. Our proper response to suffering is part of what God uses to change the world. 
This man, James, faced it. Look at this. Thus did the first apostolic martyr cheerfully. Cheerfully. He was beheaded cheerfully. I don't know how many of us are even facing the smallest little trials in our life. Cheerfully. This guy's being beheaded cheerfully. You can imagine the head goes plop into the bucket. It's like, "Ah, that's what I want. If my head ever gets lopped off, I want a big smile on it. With patience. Some of you are like, I don't don't like that thought. Hey, it's a good thought to have, by the way. So with patience. This statement is, is is said over and over in Christianity, in, in the scriptures. When you do well and suffer for it, and you take it patiently, this is acceptable with God. Now, here's what I'm going to say. What James did in approach, appropriating his death cheerfully, courageously, bravely, is precisely what patience is. Okay? Now, I know you have a thought of patience of you know, not complaining at the red light. And I'm saying it's a lot bigger than that. So when you do well and suffer for it and you take it patiently, this is acceptable with God. The word patiently is hupomeno. And this is my simple definition for it. The brave, calm, and steadfast courage of the Christian soul. It's a brave calm. When everyone else would be riled, everyone else would be freaking out, everyone else would be, ah! Complete calm. And it's a courage that is steadfast. It can face anything. We're going to cut you to pieces. I will do this for Jesus Christ. In fact, when they say, recant, I can't recant. Why would I turn against the one I love? In fact, you ought to know him too. In other words, it maintains a sanity, a calmness in the midst of the greatest challenges, which is life and death challenges. To remain unmoved, to not recede or flee, to stand fast amidst the most severe misfortunes and trials and to hold fast one's faith in Christ to the end. To endure and bear ill treatments bravely and calmly. Following the example, facing death like Jesus. Jesus died well. Most of us would say, well, that's because he's God. However, same one that raised him from the dead. Same one dwells in you. The same one that carried him to that cross and enabled him to face death the way he did. That bolstered his soul, that held him. Yes, he was God, but he has given you the life of God within to be able to follow, to be able to do that which otherwise would be impossible. 1 Peter 2, when you do well and suffer for it and you take it patiently, this is acceptable with God. Listen to the follow-up scripture on this. For even hereunto were you called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example. We receive an example in the suffering of Christ that you should follow his steps. So now we have a direct parallel with the way you ought to face suffering is the same way Christ faced suffering at the cross. Whoa, that is profound. And you shall be hated of all men for my name's sake. Thanks, Jesus. But he that shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved. That word endures, hupomeno. He that will show patience unto the end shall be saved. So I'm going to put in our little definition. And you shall be hated of all men for my name's sake, but he that shall, shall show cur- a brave calm and a steadfast courage unto the end, the same shall be saved. Rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing instant in prayer. So I'm going to take patient, which is hupomeno, and I'm going to change it out for our little definition. Rejoicing in hope, showing a brave calm and a steadfast courage in tribulation, continuing instant in prayer. This is what a Christian does. 
Now listen to 1 Corinthians 13. You've heard that, but it has the word patience and it has hupomeno in it. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. What does it do? Well, let's give our expanded definition. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, listen, and shows a brave, calm, and a steadfast courage in all things. It's an amazing statement that we literally are resolute in our soul, cheerful, bravely facing the guillotine blade every day of our life. This is what we do in all things, whether they be small or whether they be big. We face all things with hupomeno. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, that's hupomeno right there. Jesus had patience at the cross. Jesus endured the cross. How? For the joy that was set before him. Despising the shame is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him, Jesus, that endured, that showed hupomeno, such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest you be wearied and faint in your mind. So let's switch this out for our brave calm thing. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, with a brave calm and a steadfast courage, endured the cross. Despising the shame and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God, for consider him that so bravely and courageously endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest you be wearied and faint in your own minds. So listen to the last line. It says, lest you be wearied and faint in your own minds. God has given us a pattern. He says, consider Jesus. Consider what he did. Because I know you're getting faint and weary as you're going through this trial, but consider Jesus. He endured it. And the same thing that enabled him to endure it, you have access to. So remember Jesus. Listen to Paul's command, rejoice always. Rejoice always. You know that the word always actually means always too? It means always. In every circumstance, rejoice, rejoice. So not just even in trials, even in good things, rejoice, rejoice always. So let's look at our list that we started with. We are grieved by many trials and yet we greatly rejoice. We rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. So yes, we are grieved by many trials, but we rejoice in the midst of those with a joy, by the way, that's unspeakable and full of glory. We're reviled, persecuted, and falsely accused, and yet blessed are we, let us rejoice and be exceeding glad. We are partakers of Christ's sufferings, and yet we may be glad with exceeding joy. We endure tribulations, and yet we are exceeding joyful. We face trials and testings, and yet we count it all joy. The grapes of grace. Let's look at the early church now, because when we're the American Christian version of things, what I'm talking about here definitely does not sit normal. We think different than this. We live different than this. We have different expectations for our life. But I want you to just pause for a second and just imagine that the American version of Christianity and our mentalities may not be actually the way God intends it to be. Possibility. Because when you study Christian history, you see something very different than the way most of us think and live. In the early church, did you know that they had a problem with people wanting to die martyrs' deaths? Isn't that weird? The church fathers had to issue an edict to say you cannot initiate your own martyrdom. I don't know if they were coming up to Roman soldiers and going, poking them, you know, and going, hey, I'm a Christian. <laughs> I, I don't know what they were doing. However, it was a problem where people wanted to die for Jesus. And what the church fathers had to say to them is, uh, you also need to live for Jesus. Dying is, is his issue. You need to live for him. Isn't that just a funny problem? Now we're having a tough time. We want to live for Jesus, but we're not too interested in suffering and dying for him. We have the exact opposite problems. I think we need a church edict 
that comes out and says, hey, God also may want you to die for him. They're like, oh, I don't know about that. Listen to this. Stephen was stoned, Philip was crucified, Matthew was slain with the sword, James, the brother of Jesus, was stoned and clubbed, Matthias was stoned and beheaded, Mark was dragged to pieces, Jude was crucified. Bartholomew was cruelly beaten and then crucified. Thomas was thrust through with a spear, Luke was hung. Simon was crucified and John was thrown into a cauldron of boiling oil and removed unscathed and then exiled to Patmos. That's the lineage that we come from, starting with Jesus, who was crucified. Now, these men did not die with frowns upon their faces. You read the stories of the martyrdoms of these men, and I tell you what, it moves you at the depths of your being. They knew something and they had something that we don't understand here in our country of comfort and ease, nestled cozily on the branches of the vine. We must recognize that there's a reason why God is growing us up, and that's so that he can share the life that is in us with the world around us. But to do that, there is a need for something known as suffering. There is a spear that goes into our side and pulls out that juice. And most of us want to avoid that spear, that sharp end with all that is in us. We plot and we hatch plans and notions for our future that will be marked by peace and calm. Not the end of a spear. And yet Jesus set his face towards Jerusalem, knowing full well what was ahead of him, and he approached it with joy. That is the pattern that has been set for us that we are to consider. It is not what we naturally would consider, I fully understand. This isn't natural man thinking. It is insanity to natural man. But it is to supernatural man, the man that is being awakened within you, that is growing that is Jesus Christ alive within you. This makes sense. It's actually logical to those of us in this room. It is spiritually discerned, though. We're like, you know what? That makes sense. God gave his life for me, and he's commanded me and asked me to give up my life for others. Lesson number two summary. Real gold fears no fire. That's a Chinese statement. The Chinese underground church, or the house church movement, that's their motto. Real gold fears no fire. I mean, if you're real gold, why would you fear fire? It's a good point. If you're false gold, you'd fear fire. But real gold, it only gets purer in and through it. So actually, as, as a result, the gold's like, hey, yeah, bring on the fire, because I'm only going to get more pure. If you're real gold, you fear no fire. So grape tenant number two, the king's grapes fear no heel. Why would we fear persecution? Why would we fear suffering? We consider it pure joy. We understand that this comes with it. This is how God shares his life with the world around us. To live is Christ, to die is gain. So we're going to give the great twist on a timeless truth. To live is to hold the juice of Christ within. To be crushed is to give the juice of Christ to others and to fill my king's cup with pleasure. Now, so you have a choice here. You could be filled with the life of Jesus and keep it for yourself. Or you could understand what Paul and the rest of the apostles understood, which is, but to be crushed is to give the juice of Christ to others. My suffering is for you, guys. The reason I'm willing to stay in this body longer, even though I would long to be with Jesus, is for your sake, so that you would have the life of Jesus. I'm willing to be broken and poured out for you. Whoa! And yet every single one of us that has spent any time in Scripture knows that that's exactly what the Bible teaches. That is the model pattern. Jesus lived it, and then Paul inherited that model. 
He followed the pattern of being conformed unto the death of Christ, and he was a picture of something. Now, you can eradicate it and say, well, that was Jesus. That's just, he was God, and that's why he did it. But you can't eradicate Paul on the same principle. Paul was a model, and he says, follow my example, guys. What you've seen and heard in me, do. It is a pattern unto us of how the Christian life is meant to be built. There is always a reason to leap. Probably one of the most fantastic and life-changing truths is the principle of rejoicing in my life. I, somewhere along the line, I, I did a lot of complaining. I did a lot of mumbling and groaning in my early years of ministry where Leslie and I were facing tremendous challenges, accusations, financial difficulties, health crises. Here's, here's Eric. God, I've given everything to you. I would expect that you would sort of kick in and back me up here. I need some support, God. This is hard. If I'm going to keep going, I need my life to be a little easier. I had it all backwards. Someday, I wish I knew the day, because then it would be a really profound story. I may write a book about it. But somehow there was a transition. But I still remember the first time I leapt for joy when falsely accused. I remember coming back to the house, the living room with Leslie. Leslie and I, I mean, it was a blow that was so deep. And I remember I, I, I repeated the scripture of Jesus saying, when you are falsely accused, leap for joy. I said, I don't care what our emotion is right now. What the word of God says, let's do it. I remember in that living room, I leapt for joy. And something changed in my life. It was like I began to see the ramifications of following truth, the benefits, the consolation. When I say that I know this message, I, don't, I didn't memorize the message. I know this message well. I understand this. I know how psychotic it sounds on the outside, and I also know how true it is when you heed it. There is a consolation that is so grand, an intimacy with Christ that is beyond words to express, that is gained in and through difficulty. I have had situations, and I want to even say this last year, where I remember, I think I said this to the staff. Staff would have to remind me if this was this last year. Some of, sometimes it all blurs together. Where I said, there's part of me that just wants out of this trial. But to get out of this trial would mean I would lose this grace and this beautiful intimacy I have with Christ because of this trial. And so in a strange way, I almost want to say, God, let me continue in the trial. But I know I should be praying that the trial ends. Because once you taste of the beauty of it, and you begin to recognize this, you recognize that the di degree of difficulty is outweighed. The life that is coming forth because of the travail is greater than the travail. And as a result, there isn't groaning and complaining anymore, but rejoicing. There is always a reason to leap. So let's do a summary. The life of a grape, tended with joy, to be trounced with joy. The proverb of the grape, the bitter boot releases the sweet wine. The glory of the grape. The glory of the grape is not found in its plump redness while nesting cozily amidst the vine, but rather it is found when its inner wine comes forth at the beckoning of the husbandman's squeeze. It is in the squeezing that the grape reveals its truest virtue, beauty, and strength. The mindset of a grape. 
I am built strong to be poured out, and it is in the pouring out that I will rejoice with the greatest fervor. It is in the crushing that I will leap the highest, and it is in the moments of squeezing that I will sing the loudest. To spill out that which was first spilled into me is my greatest delight, for I am a grape, and I was made to fill my king's cup. And finally, the motto of the grape, to fill my king's cup. We have one life to live. We have one opportunity to do this right. You have been given much. Are you willing to give up much? Let me remind you, you've been given much. You've been given the inheritance of the kingdom of heaven. You've been given, remember that, uh, that room filled with grape juice that we were talking about? It's, it's not meant to be left. It's meant to be drunk fully. You have access to the aquifer of grace. And as a result, that aquifer of grace is meant to get to this earth in and through you. You're the vessel, the carrying device. You need to carry all that's in this room full of grace, of grape juice, out to this world. But how's it going to get there? Can't get it there unless you suffer. It comes through suffering. It comes through persecution. It comes through trials. That's why we rejoice in them. That's the avenue through which all that God has given us gets into this world. And don't you care about getting it into this world? You don't want to leave this world without the grace that you've received, do you? We have one go at this. Let's get all that Jesus has given to us out into this world. Therefore, let's rejoice. Though there is real pain, though those trials are real trials, they're not fake trials. When Jesus is on that cross, he felt it. When you're on that cross, you feel it in this body. It is real agony. It is. But there is real consolation that is greater. And you will know the intimacy of walking hand in hand, heart to heart, with the king of the universe, the creator of all. And there is nothing, bar nothing, that is greater than that. Paul set his course to that, and he said, this is my north star. It is Jesus Christ, and I want to know him more than anything else. I've counted all things dung to get that, including his physical well-being, including his reputation with this world. He counted it all loss so that he could gain Jesus Christ. We hope you have enjoyed this message by Pastor Eric Ludy, delivered at the Church of Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without expressed written permission. For more information about us or to help support the ministry of Ellerslie, we invite you to visit us at ellerslie.com, E-L-L-E-R-S-L-I-E.com. Please know that you are not alone in this battle for truth, and we are cheering you on down the narrow way of the cross.